following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Children in Ukraine, Russia, across Europe, they're mourning right now. They're mourning and wailing as their daddies go off to war or send them away to escape war, some never to return. They're mourning the separation of family members, and you can even see some of the video footage of this. But as Christians around the world, including you and me, as as we follow the developments in Eastern Europe, we too are mourning. We mourn for these families, which are being torn apart by yet another unjustifiable war in our world. But more generally speaking, we mourn over the presence of sin and its influence in our world, don't we? Will God comfort us in our mourning? Well, our beatitude this evening gives us the answer. The beatitudes as a whole describe really two principal realities explicitly, but then with one uh, inferred or implicit reality as well. They describe the people of the kingdom of heaven, and then they describe the character of the kingdom of heaven, the people in the first half of each beatitude, but then the character of the kingdom of heaven in the second half of each beatitude. But behind both of those is the opposition to the kingdom of heaven that we face in the world, namely the influence of sin and Satan and their kingdoms in the world. But what you need to understand about the Beatitudes is they aren't just quaint sayings. They're not, you know, delightful things to memorize or even lines of poetry. These are royal decrees pronounced to the people of God, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, against the kingdom of sin and Satan in the world. These beatitudes are royal decrees from our king against the influence and effects and presence of sin in the world. And thus, each one ought to be a great comfort to us when we mourn over the effects of sin in the world. What I would seek to show you from Matthew 5, 4, from this particular beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What I seek to show you from this one is that only those who mourn over the presence of sin in the world shall be comforted by God. Only those who mourn over the presence of sin in the world shall be comforted by God. And we'll look at this under three headings. The problem, the people, and then the character of the kingdom. The first is sin's presence in the world. That's the kingdom problem. And then we'll see the Christians mourning over sin, considering the kingdom people. And then God's comfort for needy sinners, which is namely the kingdom character that we'll consider this evening. So first, sin's presence in the world as a kingdom problem. There are two things that we need to remind ourselves this evening as we come to our text, and that is the origin and development of sin as it's traced out through Scripture for us and through human history, but then namely, and and probably more uh, significantly for each of us, the
the effects of sin on our lives and on your life in particular. So first, the origin and development of sin. Where do we see sin introduced? Boys and girls, you know, where does sin come into the world? It comes in in the Garden of Eden. It's in Genesis chapter 3. We read there that the serpent said to the woman, remember the serpent is Satan taking the form of a serpent. He says to the woman, that is Eve, you surely will not die, questioning God's word. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, namely the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Temptation comes. And then in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. This is the origin of sin in the world. This is where what Westminster Larger Catechism 191 calls the kingdom of sin and Satan. This is where it makes its beachhead into the world. Its first outpost right in God's paradise with the first woman and the first man over all creation. This is the origin of the problem. But then the Bible doesn't leave us wondering what happens. In fact, one of the great themes of Scripture is to show us how this kingdom of sin and Satan, how this influence of sin progresses and develops through human history. We see it namely and summarized for us in Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what did he do to address it? He sent a flood to purge the world of man and his sinfulness. But yet right after the flood takes place. After the people get off the ark and just a generation or two later, we read of all the people of the earth gathering in Genesis chapter 11 on the plains of Shinar to do what? To defy God's direction to fill the whole earth. To build up a tower. To grandize themselves. To what? Make a name for ourselves by building a tower whose top will reach into heaven. We see the development of sin through every stage of human history. And it just keeps on progressing to the point where Paul cries out in Romans 3.23. What does he say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a universal problem in our world. We all face it, don't we? But I hope what you're recognizing in my brief, very brief, description of the origin and development of sin and this kingdom of Satan, so to speak, his dominion, his influence in the world, is that this is true history. This is historical fact. One of the expressions of sin in the world is that everything I just said would be contradicted and negated by the philosophers and historians of this present evil age. They would say, none of that's true. You just made all that up. No, in fact, I didn't. It comes directly from God's word. Children, as you grow up, you will be challenged on these truths, and you must know them inside and out. You must know the history that God has given us and trust it as true history, the very word of God who himself is the only eyewitness from these events who still speaks to us, isn't he? But now, considering the history of the kingdom of sin, we now must move into its effects on your life, which are a bit more pointed for us. These effects are in you, they're around you, and then they're also 
they have an effect upon you. Sin in you, around you, and then with an effect upon you. In you is expressed in Ezra chapter 10. When recognizing the sin, not only of the people, but also of himself, he prays and makes confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. You see, they recognized sin in them. And then Paul picks up on this when he's addressing the church in Corinth, which was a very sinful church. And he says to them, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead over your sin so that the one who has done this deed, a particular sinner who has done a particularly notorious deed, would be removed from your midst. Paul chastises these people for not seeing the sin in them and mourning over it. And then, again, in 2 Corinthians 12, 21, when he writes his follow-up letter, he's planning to visit them, and he says, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. These are but expressions, examples, if you will, of sin in the camp. In each of us, we have... Further examples that we could add to this number, but we must move on. We also have sin not only within you, but also around you. Consider Ezekiel chapter 9. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst around them. And so we too must be people who mourn the sin that's around us, recognizing it, calling it out even when appropriate, and asking God to deliver us from it. We do this in our prayer meeting, don't we? When we pray, and particularly the time of confession, on behalf of our country, confessing that our country has been in grave sin in different areas, namely abortion and uh, despising the poor and abusing those around us. And we pray for God to deliver us from these sins and to forgive us as a nation for these things. I wonder if there are Russian believers even now who are praying prayers of confession for their nation's complicity in this invasion of Ukraine, an otherwise innocent nation as far as I know. It would be wholly appropriate to do so, but more than even national confession, when we confess the sins of the church, we reflect this truth that we see sin around us, even in our most intimate spiritual community, and we ask for God to, to deliver us, to forgive us, to restore us again to his favor. Paul writes in Philippians 3.18, for many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, mourning the sin which he sees around him. But what is the effect that these various expressions of sin and Satan's dominance, what effect does it have on you and me? Psalm 119, 136 shows the effects it has on the godly. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Brothers and sisters, does sin affect you like this? I was listening to a song on the radio uh, while driving around earlier this week, and this song was prefaced with a little historical comment on 
the sacrifice of 10,000 British soldiers holding the line that the, that the many more thousands men and, and, and soldiers who were in Dunkirk could flee across the English Channel. 10,000 men were killed. Why? We're speaking about ultimacy because of the influence of sin in the world. And actually caused me to well up with tears. And when I was in a church growing up, in my, in my church back in uh, Philadelphia area in Pennsylvania, I remember one of our elders uh, got up. He was reading an Old Testament passage that recounted the deaths of 30,000 people. And he stopped. And he started to weep in the pulpit over this. That's how much it affected him. Now, I'm not saying every time you encounter one of these facts or expressions of sin's power in the world, you should immediately start weeping. You wouldn't be able to get through the day. But what I am suggesting is it wouldn't be inappropriate to do so. That is, you consider the different wars in the world, but particularly your own sin and the sins of Christ's church. You would be affected in your inner man. And you would shed streams of water from your eyes, as it says in Psalm 119. So we've considered sin's presence in the world, the problem that Christ addresses with this beatitude. And now we move to the beatitude itself, and we consider Christians mourning over sin. Christ said, blessed are those who mourn. What does this mourning look like, and where does it come from? Those are the two questions we should ask. First, what it looks like. We could go to Psalm 51, a very familiar passage. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to the greatness of thy compassions. Or we could go to Romans 7. We could go to both. Well, this evening we'll go to Romans 7 to see a picture of what Christian mourning over sin looks like. It begins with recognition of God's holiness and our sin. Paul says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. He recognizes it. The one who wants to do good, though I'm a Christian, yet this sin is still at work in me. Evil still has influence, presence in my heart. And why should that be a problem? Other than the desire to be holy, the problem is, expressed in Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The problem is, if evil yet exists in me, and God is holy, then how do I maintain a relationship with God? How can it be that I'm not consumed as he necessarily judges my sin and eradicates it? Well, this is where Paul then moves to confession. Having recognized God's holiness and his own sin, he then confesses his sin. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. You see, he's moved now beyond bare recognition, and now he's confessing his concurrence with the goodness and the holiness of God's law. And he then gets a bit further into how it is that he's struggling in his inner man to keep that law or to fulfill it because yet there's evil within him. And then finally, he ends in Romans 7 and we would see a similar progression, though a bit more poetically put in Psalm 51, but he ends in Romans 7 with this supplication made with great hope that God will hear him and deliver him. He says, wretched man that I am, Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
My friend, are you here this evening mourning over your sin? Do you recognize its presence, its work in your own heart? No matter how long you've been a Christian or how young you are in the faith. Or perhaps you're not so sure Jesus can do anything about your sin. And yet you wrestle with it. Here's the model that the Bible gives to you. And the hope that God's word gives to you. Come to the Lord in confession. Saying, I agree with your law. I know it's right. I know it's good. But I can't keep it. Lord, help me. Forgive me for transgressing against you. Give me aid. Give me the righteousness of Christ. And see, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you not see what is offered to you? Lay claim to it and grasp it and call on the name of Christ. Now we see what Christians mourning over sin looks like. But where does this mourning come from? How can it be stirred up within us? Well, you can't manufacture it. You know, some in the world, they turn to substances, medications, alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, to deaden the pain, to take away the guilt and the shame. Others maybe throw themselves into experiences, a constant stream of vacations and activities and fun things to purchase and what have you. Those enticements of the world are not going to help you deal with your sin. You cannot manufacture relief if your conscience is burdened. Now here in the South, those problems are in abundance. I've learned that over five years. But there's also a great problem, North, South, wherever, of hypocrisy, of trying to fake it. This is a great evangelical problem, isn't it? You go to the typical evangelical church and everybody's bubbly and happy. There's no problems. Everyone has it all put together. At least that's what it seems like. And yet, what's lying beneath that? It's putting on a show? Is that what it is? To try to force yourself to feel good? My friends, that's just as bad as a drug habit. It's just trying to manufacture a particular feeling. To try to dig it up on your own will and your own power. You can't do that. Mourning over sin doesn't come from human effort or will or medications or education or experiences or toys or whatever. Rather, mourning over sin must agree with the word of God and be wrought by his spirit. God's word says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You see that Christian mourning, Christian lament, Christian bewailing sin and its effects in the world must be according to the will of God. That's what it looks like. That's where it's coming from. And Psalm 51, 17 puts it beautifully. The sacrifices of God, what he accepts, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And so how do we get it? How can we express Christian mourning and lament in truth leading unto salvation? Well, it must be wrought by the Holy Spirit through God's chosen means and above them and beyond them and around them. In other words, you must be born again from above. That lies back of all true mourning over sin and its effects, either in yourself or around you. You must be regenerate, born again, made new in Christ Jesus. 
That doesn't mean that born-again believers are necessarily bubbly or happy or silly people, always clapping and smiling. No. Brothers and sisters, we are necessarily serious people because we know what it is to mourn over sin. We know the gravity, the weight of eternity, which awaits each of us if Christ does not save us from sin. We are serious about sin, aren't we? And thus, sincere in our joy at God's salvation, at the revelation of Christ. And that leads us to our third point this evening. That is the character of the kingdom that I told you about. God's comfort now for needy sinners. We've considered sin's presence in the world, its origin, its development, its effects. We've considered what what mourning looks like and where it comes from. True Christian mourning and lament. And now we can consider God's comfort for needy sinners in this third place. Notice first that this comfort is promised and it shall be experienced. When Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, again, he's making a pronouncement of something about all those who have been brought into his kingdom. He's saying, you are blessed. You are ones who experience true kingdom of heaven life. You have it in your possession. It is yours. It was mine to give, and I give it unto you. And I pronounce it over all those who have been brought into my kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. My friends, if you're here and you're united to Christ through faith, you are blessed as one who has mourned over sins and has known comfort and shall know comfort. You see, shall be comforted. This reason given for the blessing of the pronouncement here. It's a future passive construction. What does that mean? That means that it's a promise of God. Notice, Jesus doesn't say who's going to comfort you. He just says, you shall be comforted. And so what we assume there is that he's talking about God doing the comforting. He's making a promise from God. And this aligns perfectly with what we know about God from the Old Testament, doesn't it? Both from our reading in Isaiah 61, but also back of that, Isaiah chapter 40. At the very beginning of this grand section of Isaiah, these are the words. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And it continues. Jeremiah 31, verses 13 and 14, pick up on this similar theme. Then the virgin will rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together, for I will um, turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. I will fill the soul of the priests with abundance and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Or a better translation, declaration of Jehovah. Ineradicable, invincible pronouncement. They shall be comforted. In fact, they are. And that passage, Jeremiah 31, would have been fresh on the mind of Matthew as he recorded this gospel because he had just cited it three chapters earlier in chapter 218 in what? In reference to Jesus fulfilling the messianic hope. You see, Christ comes as the consolation of Israel. This is a sure even though not necessarily predictable as to how it will be fulfilled, but this is a sure promise. 
Psalm 130 verses 4 and 5 says, There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. The confession of the believer, one who shall be comforted, who knows it. It's a promise that's given to you. What does the experience of this promise look like? Lloyd-Jones makes a point, and it's a good one, that there is a future element to this for all believers as they labor through their earthly pilgrimage. But there's also a present reality that wherever you are mourning over sin, immediately God provides comfort. Have you experienced that in your own life? That immediately or very soon after the morning begins, you are reminded of the comforts of God. He gives you his word preached and read. or You come across it yourself or you're just reminded of his goodness to you in your life. This experience of comfort, this promised comfort, it's by the spirit of God. There's a reason why Christ calls him the spirit of comfort or consolation. The helper, a very present help in times of trouble. This is how we experience it as the Spirit visits with us. This is why we pray every worship service for the Spirit to be in our midst. To comfort us as we are confronted and reminded of our sin. And as we are brought into mourning and conviction of sin. To also bring us out of it. To deliver us and to set us before God the Father assured of his love for us. The Spirit is the one who does that work in our lives. Again, we don't manufacture it. We don't make it up ourselves. This experience wrought by the Spirit is relief from the burden of sin. But I want you to capture this. It is relief specifically in Christ. Psalm 56, 8 puts it this way. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? What that means is you yourself, O God, have done this. You have been my comforter. You have kept record of all of my trials and my afflictions. And you are the one who delivers. Isaiah 61, which we've already read, tells us the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, that being Christ, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. He comes proclaiming peace and good news and comfort. If you have any doubt that this relief is found in Christ. You have only to turn to Luke chapter 2 to see it spelled out for us explicitly. When Christ is brought into the temple as an infant, who is there waiting? A man named Simeon who has been there his whole life looking for the consolation of Israel, we're told. One who had the Holy Spirit upon him, who was guided and directed by the Holy Spirit to be in the temple that day when Christ had been come so that... What God had revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, namely that he would see the consolation of Israel in his life, would be fulfilled. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents, that's Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. Then Simeon took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart, that is to die, in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And I love this line that Luke includes. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him, namely Jesus Christ. He is 
the comfort that we find promised by God in Old Testament, declared by him in Matthew chapter 5. And this comfort as a present reality, as I've said, also inspires hope for us in the future defeat of the kingdom of sin and Satan. What troubles do you face, dear believer, this night? Medical ailments, physical pain, spiritual torment, anxiety, a quick temper perhaps. You wish you were more holy and righteous than you are. We had one child pray this evening that God would help the children to be more obedient to parents. Boys and girls, are you struggling with that? And and is your conscience burdened as it ought to be? Well, find comfort in Christ. He who perfectly uh, fulfilled the law of God on your behalf, who went to the cross to suffer the penalty for your sins. Place your faith and your trust in him and find relief for your souls. And he will inspire you not only with comfort today, but with hope for tomorrow. We're going to sing in a second a setting of Psalm 126. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. Why? As Revelation 7.17 says, For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And as Revelation 21.3 and 4 tells us, as John heard a loud voice from the throne saying this, Behold, the tabernacle, that's dwelling place of God, is among men and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This is what awaits us when the kingdom of sin and Satan is destroyed and we are eternally comforted by God with his hand upon our cheeks, as it were. Hopefully very soon, uh, most of the daddies that I mentioned earlier will go home from war. The Ukrainian fathers to their children in Kiev and uh, and other cities. The Russian fathers to their children in Moscow and St. Petersburg and elsewhere. Now, when when those daddies get home, what do you think the children are going to do? Are they simply going to stop crying? Breathe a sigh of relief and say, I'll welcome home, Dad, and then go to their video games or their books or their TVs or whatever. No. They'll be comforted and they will leap for joy. They'll explode with delight in the return of their fathers and the comfort that comes after mourning. If you've ever been in an airport or a train terminal or maybe you've seen it on YouTube or something, videos of servicemen coming home to their families... They're not calm at all. They are wildly excited to see their parents returning home. Great happiness, great joy. And the point here is that in the comforting, it's not merely that your feeling of mourning and loss is removed, but it's replaced with great joy, and in that your emotional life will be expanded and exploded beyond what you could have conceived yourself of feeling. Now take that image that I just gave you, that image of joyful reunion uh, between a father and, and his children upon coming home from war, and multiply that uh, by a thousand, and you'll start to approach something of our Christian experience when we go home to Christ. 
or when, when he returns to us at his coming. You see, we know sin's presence in the world today, but there is coming a time at Christ's return when he will make all things new, or at our death, when we will be perfected in holiness, when we will know nothing of sin and regret. Its power will be eradicated. We'll be separated far from it. (laughs) Won't that be a great cause for joy? Isn't that a source of comfort to us today? You see, we agonize even now as we mourn over our sins, as we bring them to the Lord with shame in our hearts, as we confront our, our, our beloved family members with their sins, or, or as we go to confess and to seek forgiveness for how we've wronged them. There's coming a time when there will be no room for that anymore. You will have no regrets lived. You'll have no mourning over sin. There will be no wars or rumors of wars. For Christ will make all things new. Isn't that a cause for great rejoicing? Even now as we anticipate it. Isn't that a great inspiration of comfort for us? Now finally, as we considered the character of Christ's kingdom. That he does promise and we experience his comfort in some small measure in our lives today. Begin to meditate on the comfort that awaits you. The eternal, infinite, ever expanding in our experience comfort. Where though we, though 10,000 years will go on, we'll still have new songs to sing about how great a comforter the Lord is. How much blessing he's heaped upon us as our king who makes this pronouncement. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But returning to my main point. Note, I said at the beginning, only those who mourn over the presence of sin in the world shall be comforted by God. If you're here this evening and you have no mourning over sin, if you are what we would say dead to any feeling of shame or regret or guilt, then my friend, I warn you that you will not enter into this blessedness that Christ promises. You will be excluded from it for you know not the heart of God, either for sinners or over sinners. And we plead for the Holy Spirit to come and to awaken in you your conscience that you might then taste of the mourning of sin and its desolations so that you would then know the comfort that Christ gives in his restoration. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.